Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Ryan Stacy and welcome to the Hockey Minds Podcast. This podcast is powered by My Hockey Resource and Insat, the leader in video and data analysis. Insat Hockey supports all levels of our game worldwide with video breakdowns and or scouting services. For more information, visit Insat on the web at instatsport.com or on Twitter at Insat Hockey. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Bob Duraney, head coach at Worcester State and assistant coach with the Worcester Railers. Bob is an intelligent hockey mind with a unique perspective on the game, having gone through the college experience as a player himself. Moving all over the world, coaching with various organizations, he has seen many unique dynamics, and he brings that broad range of experience and insight to the forefront of our conversation today. With that, here's Bob Duraney, head coach at Worcester State and assistant coach with the Worcester Railers. Hockey fans, we've been patiently waiting the last couple of weeks to see what's going to happen with the trade deadline. And in basketball, that trade deadline is approaching quickly, as basketball has officially entered the second half of the season. This is the time for teams to prove if they are contenders or pretenders. And DraftKings, the leader in one-day fantasy sports, is giving new players a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes. Get in the action now to claim your free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes when using code THPN during sign-up. Playing daily fantasy basketball is simple. You just pick your lineup, stay under the salary cap, and see how your team stacks up against the competition. Feel the sweat like never before. Every dunk, steal, assist means so much more with a DraftKings daily fantasy lineup. Up north, we're definitely watching the Toronto Raptors play out of Tampa this season and want to know what they're going to do with Kyle Lowry, Norman Powell, and other players. With DraftKings, payday comes every day for players, so what are you waiting for? Head to the app now. Download the DraftKings app now and use code THPN during sign-up. That's code THPN and you can get a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes only at DraftKings. Minimum $5 deposit required. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. Today on the podcast, we're joined by Bob Duraney, head coach of Worcester State and assistant coach with the Worcester Railers of the ECHL. Bob, thanks for joining the podcast. Great to be with you, Ryan. Yeah, I'm really glad to have you on the podcast. And we had a quick conversation here before. And, um, you know, we know some people where time with the Growlers and and just some of the people in the hockey world. So um, I'm excited to finally get you on and kind of go through your career. So let's just start off by learning about you. Maybe talk about your upbringing, playing sports in your early years, and just give people a background on who you are. 
Okay. Well, it's a long story. I'm 55 years. I actually just turned 56. So um, I'll kind of give you the highlights of it. You know, what's really interesting is that I really didn't start playing organized sports until I was 12 years old. Um, my parents really didn't know much about organized sports. The only kind of sports we played was in the neighborhoods. We'd play, you'd go down to the field and play baseball, or we'd start, have a, play street hockey out in, out in the streets. Or in the winter, when the casual water froze, we'd all race to see who could get there first, you know, to play. But that was really my first experience um, with sports. And what's really interesting is my dad worked 80 hours a week. Um, and my mom basically was the athlete in the family. And she was the one who taught us how to throw and how to, how to play games and, and things of that nature. And I think that was a real benefit for me because um, growing up, they were just athletes. They weren't boys or girls. And as you know, my career, I've had a long career coaching men, but I've also had just as long a career coaching women. And I think that has really helped me to see, I don't see a female or a male in front of me um, when I'm with an athlete. I just see an athlete who wants to become better. And, you know, one of the most, uh, I, I think, valuable lessons I've learned in my life um, when I was 12 years old, and I know I keep going back to 12 years old, but that was really the turning point where um, I fell in love with sports. Um, and I was coming off the baseball field and I was bad mouthing my teammates. I was bad mouthing my coaches. I thought I should have been playing more. I thought the coach was playing favorites. And I get in the car and my mother says to me, um, you don't like how much you're playing? I said, no, I don't. She goes, then play better. She didn't say, you know, do you want me to talk to the coach? Do you want me to, you know, do you want to change teams? If she had said, you know, back then, I really didn't understand what she was saying to me at the time. But when I look back on it, this is what she was saying. She says, I believe in you, honey. Just play like you're capable of playing. Everything will take care of itself. If she had told me, do you want to change teams or do you want me to speak to the coach? Then basically she'd be saying, you're not good enough. And I don't believe in you. So that was the most important lesson of which the foundation of my, the rest of my career was built on. Because I realized at that moment, I was going, when people tell you you're not good enough, Okay. It's not because they don't like you or if they're not playing you, it's not because they don't like you. It's you're not, you're not good enough. And so the only remedy to that is to play better or try harder. And that's basically what I've been doing my entire life. And so I played baseball in the summer and I played hockey in the winter. I went to a school called Catholic Memorial, not because it was a division one high school hockey team. It was because it was the closest school to my house to go to high school. And they just happened to have a hockey team. And I had some success there. I played two sports. I wasn't tough enough to play football. So I played hockey in the winter and I played baseball in the spring. In the summer, I would play baseball and then I would dabble in hockey just because I loved it so much. It was my sport. In fact, I only disobeyed my parents once. And that was during the winter. And my mom said, I must've done something wrong. And I did a lot of things wrong when I was a kid. But she said, you're not going to hockey practice. And I was heartbroken. And I snuck out of the house. I grabbed my hockey bag, my goalie equipment. I was a goalie. And I walked to the rink, which was about a half mile from my house. And I practiced. And I came home. And my mom never knew I left. Because <laughs> I was supposed to be up in my room. But that, that's how much I loved hockey. It's the only time that I disobeyed my parents when they said something. Um, but hockey's everything, and it's turned out to be everything to me. I got two things in my life. I have my family that I love very much, and I've got hockey, and I live a very fulfilled life. Now, I know that's a, you know, and it's something that I can't turn off. 
I think about 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that's not healthy. I know that. Okay. But there's no place I'd rather be or no, nothing I would rather think about when I'm not totally invested in my family. And so I fell in love with this sport because of everything. I think it's life concentrated. Um, maybe because the impact it's had in my life, but for whatever reason, um, it's everything to me. And so I go to Catholic Moore and I have some success. And then I decide now I've got, you know, I've got some college choices to make. And I was fortunate enough that I applied to 13 schools and I got into 10 of them. I didn't get into any of the Ivy League schools, Harvard, Dartmouth, or Yale, which is really interesting because I couldn't go to school at Dartmouth, but I was able to go there and mentor young men. So I think that's kind of interesting. I couldn't get in there academically, but they felt comfortable putting young men in my hands. But, but I, I fortunately got into to 10 schools and I chose to go to Boston University. And the reason why I went to Boston University, and I probably should have gone to Babson College where I could have played, uh, and I was assured to play, not my freshman year, but my sophomore, junior, and senior year. But I decided to go to Boston University because at that time, I thought to myself, if I'm gonna fail, I wanna fail at the highest level. I don't wanna be 47 years old looking back saying I woulda, coulda, shoulda. This was my mentality. I was not afraid of failing. I was afraid of not knowing. And I think that's one of the biggest tragedies in life. The big, to me, trying and failing, I think is success. Not trying at all is a tragedy because you'll never know. And so I end up going to Boston University and as a recruited walk-on. They gave me the most financial aid. And I think it's really important for you to know, Ryan, that um, I lost my dad when I was 14. And when I went to Boston University, my mom was diagnosed with cancer for the second time. And so um, going to school, I had to stay close to home, but really it came down to, I picked Boston University one, because I love the school, I love the coach, I love the team, but most importantly, they offered me the most financial aid to get an education. And I've never chased this hockey dream. And I think that's another thing. I think when you're least looking for it, that's when you find it. I went to Catholic Memorial because it was close to my house. I went to Boston University because it had hockey, but most importantly, it gave me the most financial aid. And so what I was was a recruited walk-on. And what a recruited walk-on means is that they knew that you were coming. So I trial for the team and I get cut. And Coach Parker puts me on the JV team. Now, back when I played 83 to 87, they had a JV team that was a one-semester team. So I'm going to practice. And Coach says, hey, Duraney, you're getting a B in calculus. I said, yeah, Coach, that sounds about right. He says, keep up the good work. I was just making small talk. He cut me. You know, we just happened to run into each other. But what he was doing was he was actually checking up on my grades to see what kind of student I was. And during those three months, he got to know the type of person I was. Thought I must have thought I was a pretty good kid. I think that's why he took me. Um, to BU because actually Brian DeRocher, who was the assistant coach at the time, his uncle actually worked at Catholic Memorial. And I think Mr. Fortin had a lot to do with my character and telling them what this, what this type of young man I was. So I think they took a shot on me. And then the last thing was coach always knew I was the first one on the ice, last one to leave. You know, one of the biggest running jokes at Boston University is no one got more ice time at BU than Bob Duraney. Because for four years, I was the first one on the ice, last one to leave. It never changed. So come December, they cut the entire JV team and they keep one player. 
they kept me. Why? Because I was the consummate third goalie. This is the first lesson I learned. You never know what the difference is going to be. So be great at everything. Coach checked up on my grades to see I was a good student. He got to know me as a person. He knew I was a pretty good kid. And thirdly, I love to play. Goes back to the time. I think I love to play because I didn't play when I was four, five, six, or seven. I actually had a childhood. I chose to play. I asked my mother when I was 12 years old, mom, can I play baseball, organized baseball? She had no idea what it was. A kid at school told me about it. But I think that's the one of the biggest things for young children. It's their life. Let, you know, I did it on my terms. I felt like when I started playing hockey, I didn't have to sacrifice my child. I wanted to be at the rink. And I think because I did it on my terms and felt like I've started playing when I wanted to play is why I still love it so much today. Cause I didn't start real early. I actually started real late. And so all of a sudden now I'm the third goalie on the varsity. But Coach Parker didn't want to give me any hope. So the way the, the um, BU varsity locker room was set up, you had the varsity room, then you had a shower, the showers, and then in between the JV and the varsity room. And the JV room actually had a door, but Coach wouldn't even unlock that door. Every day I would have to walk through the varsity room, through the showers, get dressed by myself with all my goal equipment on, walk through the showers, through the varsity room, and go practice. But I didn't care. As long as I got to play, my dream was still alive to be a college hockey player. And I thought I did a pretty good job. You know, I waited my time. When the two goalies wanted out, I would go in. I never asked for more time. You know, I knew my role, the third goalie, to spell them when they wanted to spell. So at the end of the season, I think I did my job, and it's time to have our year-end meeting. And I go in and see Coach Parker. And Coach Parker says, Bob, you will never play here. And you know something, Ryan? He was right. I was overweight. I was out of shape. I wasn't a D1, Division One athlete. But I remember that story I told you when I was 12 years old about not playing, bad-mouthing my teammates, bad-mouthing my coaches. My mom said, you don't like how much you're playing, honey? Then play better. Well, that came right to me. Coach isn't telling me I'm never going to play here because he doesn't like me. He's telling me because I'm not good enough. So what do you want to do? This is, the, this is the voice in my head. So what do you want to do, Bob? I said, I want to prove him wrong. So I leave his office and I go down to Mike Boyle's office. Now, Mike Boyle is a world-renowned strength and conditioning coach. He's known all around the world. He's won World Series with the Boston Red Sox. He's won gold medals with the U.S. Women's Olympic team. I mean, he is, he's the authority. Now, I might not be his most high-profile athlete, but I am his very first. Mike was starting out in the business, and I go down to his office, and I tell him the story. He says, what do you want to do? I said, I want to prove him wrong. So three months later, 40 pounds lighter, I show up to my sophomore year fall. Coach is so impressed with my commitment to his program that he puts me right in the varsity room. Now, this is the second lesson I learned. What is success? Success is not beating yourself. Success is doing everything you possibly can to be successful. And if you do that, whether you win or lose or whether you achieve your goal or don't achieve your goal, you're successful because you did everything you possibly could. If you look back and say, you know something, I shouldn't have went to that party. You know, I should have worked out for, I missed that workout. Well, then you get what you get. And the only, only person you have to blame is yourself. But nobody could have worked any harder. Every morning I woke up, every time I went to bed, any, the only thing that was on my mind is I want to make the BU hockey team. 
And I thought to myself, if my fellow goaltenders, Peter Fisher and Terry Tolliver at the time, worked as hard as I did, we're going to be pretty good. We're going to be really good, actually. So now I'm practicing with the varsity on a regular basis. And the guys would say, how come you practice so hard? I said, because I don't get to play on Fridays and Saturday nights like you. I'm not even dressing. I'm the third goalie. But if my opportunity ever came and I wasn't prepared, I could never live with myself. And there was never a guarantee it was coming. But if it ever came and I wasn't ready, like I said, I, I, that fear drove me. So all of a sudden, the way I'll, I'll give you the long version because it, it, it's just the way it works. And I think it's really important for all the aspiring hockey players out there. So I got to clean up a couple of messes. You know, I was the backup goal. One Terry Tolliver got hurt. So I'm backing up Peter Fish now. And uh, sometimes, you know, the score might get out of hand and I'd go in and clean up. And I'll never forget the first time I got to clean up. <laughs> the first time I got to play in a hockey game, um, we're at North Dakota, and it is basically about a minute and 50 seconds into the game, and we're down 3-0. Um, and I look at Coach, and he's not looking at me because he's just not <laughs> – he knows what I'm thinking. And then all of a sudden, at 2 minutes and 52 seconds, North Dakota scores, uh, scores goal number four, and I go in. And, uh, and this is really important. The reason why I share this story because – when I went into the net for nothing, you know, three minutes into the first period at North Dakota, and they had um, a pretty, you know, they had, a, they had guys like uh, Tony Herkus and Eddie Belfort, and, and they were really good. Jay Caulfield ended up playing in, in for the Pittsburgh Penguins. My teammate, Eddie Lowney, came down to me and said, this is the opportunity you've been waiting for. Um, don't mess it up. And he used a four-letter word there, but I'm not going to say it. But what was really important about that is because they, the guys played for me because I wasn't whining, because I wasn't complaining, because I was a good teammate. When I went in, they played for me. And I think we ended up losing the game seven to five, which means we end up winning the game. I won the game five, three. Um, but, but Peter started the next day. And a lot of people might be angry at that. I'm not angry at that. I was just happy that I got a chance to play and all my hard work was being rewarded because people were noticing. So later on in the season, it's me and Peter, and Peter ends up breaking his finger. We'll play Michigan Tech, and I think the score might have been three to two, and then we end up winning four to three, and that was my first win. The next day, um, I get my first college start against Michigan Tech, and I think we're winning four nothing after the first period. They make it four one. We make it five one, and then Michigan Tech pulls their team off the ice. The coach was Jim Nargang at the time, never to return. So here I am, 2-0, and and I haven't even played a full hockey game yet. And unfortunately, I think Jim Nargang, two weeks later, lost his job. But, event, but now I went on, I won uh, seven games in a row. And um, at the end of the season, Coach Parker gave me a full, picked up all my tuition, room, board, and fees for my sophomore year and gave me a full scholarship for my junior and senior season. Now, the reason why I share all that with you is because people only see when you're successful. They have no idea what goes into it. And besides my parents, Jack Parker was my greatest teacher. Yeah, the guy that told me I would never play for him, the guy that told that cut me, 
he was my greatest teacher because he saw inside of me what I didn't see I had inside myself. And he brought it out in me. And that's why to this day, I always say, besides my parents, Jack Park was my greatest teacher, not because he taught me about hockey, and he taught me a lot about hockey. A lot of the foundations that are inside me uh, are because of him. But more importantly, he taught me about life. He took me from being a boy to being a man. He brought out things in me I never knew I had inside me. He taught me what true success is. And it isn't what the score is at the end of the, at the, end of the game. It's how well did we play? Or how well did you play? So the reason why I share these stories with you is because that's where I'm, my coaching is rooted. It's not about me. It's about the players that I coach. It's about their goals and dreams. And if I can affect one person's life the way Jack Parker affected my life, then my time on this earth has been worthwhile. And that's why I got into coaching. It's not because of the wins and losses. It's not because of the fame and fortune. And there's not a lot of fame and there's not a lot of fortune, at least at the levels that I coach at. The fortune that I have is the fact that I got to watch young people and help them chase their goals and dreams like Coach Parker helped me chase mine. And so that's my story. Yeah, that's a, that's a great story. And I, and I love a number of things you talk about, obviously, uh, you know, starting at the age of 12, a little bit later than say most people will. Some people talk about learning to skate while they're learning to walk. And, um, you know, I was one of those people that maybe took a little bit longer as well. So I definitely relate to that. And I love the fact that, you know, you have a story going in and, and you know, people may be doubting you or pushing against you kind of at the university college level. And, you know, you got to that level where you could get in the games and, learn those lessons. And I think it just um, definitely relates to other people. And especially the way you talk about the obsession with hockey and you kind of think about it, you know, every time you're pretty much not dealing with your family. And I'm sure there's listeners uh, on the podcast today who are thinking the same way and are definitely interested to see how the next steps went for you. So you talked about learning those coaching lessons and ultimately you then advanced into the world of coaching. Um, one of the early positions you had coaching was with Northeastern as a goalie slash assistant coach. Talk about how you found yourself in that initial role and maybe what you learned uh, your first time behind the bench um, with a program like that. I think, it, you know, what's interesting is that in order to make money, I had mentioned that my, my mom was very sick when I was at, at BU. Um, she probably should have died my freshman year of college, um, but she battled and fought as hard as she possibly could uh, until 1986. She ended up dying in August of 86. Once she knew two boys were going to be okay, um, she knew it was okay to go. And um, the reason why I share that with you is obviously, you know, to make money in the summers, I worked hockey schools, but that was my number one priority. And so I'd go right from working out at BU to working hockey camps. And that's how I made money in the summer. And if my money ran out in the winter, I had no more money left. So I made sure I, I worked really hard to, um... but what I didn't understand, Ryan, was that I was actually gaining coaching experience at the time. I was doing it for money, because I was going to have a playing career after BU, right? Um, but I was gaining valuable coaching experience. I worked at Joe Batani's goaltending camp. I worked uh, with um, Pro-Am coaching their teams. Um, I was working with uh, Europa Cup, Steve Sterling and Dick Flood. Uh, anything, I was a coach for hire. No matter what, do what, didn't matter. So now I graduate from Boston University and I have the fortune to go to the New York Rangers um, training camp. and. Um, got released there and then played with the Johnstown Chiefs in Johnstown for 88, uh, sorry, 87, 88 season. Then I got to go to camp, which was a real privilege to go to camp with the Boston Bruins in 1988. Um, 
what was really interesting there is that when I got released from the from the Bruins, which was a big thrill for me, and I, I played in um, an exhibition game with them up in Portland. Um, when I got released, I felt something change. Something inside of me changed. Um, I ended up going to Flint and playing for the, you know, going to camp with the Flint Spirits. Don Waddell at the time was uh, general manager and coach. And he let me know that I'm, I'm probably going to be sent down or, or going to be released. And I was going to be probably end up going back to Johnstown. And then I got a call from a gentleman named Tom Rezor, who I got to know from working at Europa Cup. He was the head coach of the boys varsity the Noble and Greeno School, which is a very good prep school in, in uh, Dedham, Massachusetts. And he said, Bob, I'm looking for an assistant. Would you like to be my assistant? And I'll never forget hanging up the phone. And I realized, you remember the passion I talked about? That passion to be a player was gone. Something happened when I got released from the Bruins that I changed, that fire that you needed inside you to wage that battle every day to be the very best. It wasn't there anymore. It wasn't. And I thought to myself, I'm probably going to stay around this sport a lot longer as a coach than a player. That was what my thought was. So I said to Tom, I'll take it. It wasn't, it was like $2,000. It wasn't a lot of money, but I get to coach hockey. And so I figured out the situation. Donnie told me what the situation was going to be. And I decided, thank you very much for the opportunity. I think I'm going to go back to, to Massachusetts and I'm going to coach. So I go back and, and this is really important too, for all those people who are aspiring to be pro hockey players or, or things like that. I had my degree from Boston university. I had an economics degree with a minor in business. Believe it or not, I was playing my best hockey after BU when I went to camp with the Rangers, when I was in Johnstown, when I was at camp with the Bruins. I didn't have a contract, but I was playing my best hockey. Why? Because the pressure was off. Education is the security you need to follow your dreams, to chase them with all your heart. I could leave hockey at any time and put my degree to use. There was no pressure, but yet there were other young guys that I was playing with that didn't have a degree. All they had was hockey and they would call home and tell them that people were going to come watch them play. And there was nobody coming to watch them play, but their goals and dreams were, were fading away. And you could just see it in the pressure that they were under because they didn't want to go back to where they came from. And they didn't have that degree in their back pocket. So good things happen to good people and education security need to chase your dreams. And so I come back and I start coaching. I put my degree to use. I'm working at Boston Safe Deposit and Trust Company, and I'm coaching Noble and Greeno Prep School. I love this coaching so much that I decide that I need to do more of this. So I change my job at Boston State, and I become an insurance salesman. Why do I become an insurance salesman? Because I can make my own schedule. I can do more hockey stuff. And that's how I ended up at Northeastern University. Jimmy Madigan, who's the head coach at Northeastern now, he worked Europa Cup too. And he knew, he thought I was a pretty good goalie coach. Well, so when their goalie coach, Bill Berglund, went to Boston University, they called me and asked me if I'd be interested in being their goalie coach. I said, I'd love to be a goalie coach. It'd be an honor. But I'm not a goalie coach. I'm a coach who can coach goalies. And I think that was a huge move by me to not be um, labeled a goalie coach. Because there are some unbelievable goalie coaches out there that are unbelievable hockey minds, but aren't looked at as hockey coaches, which is wrong, but it's the fact. 
Billy Berglund, unbelievable go- hockey mind. He's viewed as a goalie coach. He's the one that comes, but there are several of them out there. So I think that was one of a really smart thing by me is that, hey, you're getting two for the price of one. I'm, I'm a coach that can coach goalies. I'm not a goalie coach. And they were very nice. And, and they let me be that too. I work with the goalies. That was my responsibility. But they also allowed me to sit in on meetings and ask my opinion on different things as well, which helped me to grow as a coach. And I'm, the really funny story there is that my office was in downtown Boston. And the reason why the Northeastern job was so uh, perfect for me is that if I could get a parking pass, I could park downtown for free and walk to my office. So when, when it came to the job, I remember Don McCain, Bob, I can't pay you very much. I said, Don, I don't need a lot. All I need is a parking pass. Yeah, I, I can get your parking pass, but it's only like $4,000. I said, Don, it's not about the money. It's about the parking pass. <laughs> and so I get the parking pass. So every morning I would drive to Northeastern, park my car at Matthews Arena, walk over to my office on Exeter, um, on Boylston Street, and then come back for practice. It worked out perfectly. And working with Glenn Givenucci and Jimmy Madigan, Don McKenney, um, and what's really interesting there is Margie McKenney, Don's wife, my girlfriend at the time, Michelle, is my wife now. I'll never forget Margie, because this business is very tough on wives and families. It's very tough. And I'll never forget Don, uh, Margie, Don's wife, taking my, my girlfriend at the time, Michelle, and explaining to her what it's like to be a hockey coach's wife. And we were dating at the time. And that was, that was pivotal um, for our relationship. And so anyways, I become the, the goalie coach at Northeastern. And I love it so much. I asked Jimmy and, and Glenn one day, I go, guys, I love this. How do I do more of it? And they say, you got to get in full time. This part-time stuff, it doesn't, you're not going to make it. And fortunately, I was young enough, and I'm still dating my wife, Michelle, at the time. So then I get the job at uh, Dartmouth. And back then it was restricted earnings coach. So I'm making, I was making 4,000 at um, Northeastern. Now Ben Smith becomes the head coach at Dartmouth and he needs uh, a, a second assistant. And I was fortunate to get the job. I'm making $12,500. Now to be a full-time second assistant at the Ivy League level. And I take it. I, can, I love it. And, you know, people think it's money that makes you happy. Hey, money makes it easy. Don't get me wrong. Okay. But finding something that you love to do that you're passionate about. That's what happiness is. That's, I've never done this for the money. I've done it for the fulfilling, the, the fulfillment I get out of it. So I go up to Dartmouth. I become the, the second assistant, mostly recruiting. It was my, my um, primary job, as well as working with the goalies and defensemen. And I was fortunate enough to work with another, the first assistant time was Roger Demick. Well, Ben leaves and he goes to Northeastern the next year and Roger moves up to be the head coach and uh, I become the first assistant. Now, now my first full-time job. Now, my wife and I have been dating for six years, five years actually. And I told her once I get a full-time job, we'll get married. Sure enough, we get engaged and we end up getting married. But again, when I gave her the ring, I said, honey, you know what this, I get down on one knee, I do the whole thing. And I say, will you marry me? And then I said, she says, yes. I go, you know what this means? And she goes, I know you're a hockey coach. And I really believe that's why we're still married to this day, because this, this profession has hurt a lot of marriages, but because of Margie's words and explaining to my wife, Michelle, I think that's really important because family is very important. 
you know, it's, it's very important to me and I will never let anything get in its way. So I ended up becoming the first assistant at uh, Dartmouth. I was there from 90 to 93. And then from 93 to 98, I was fortunate enough to become the first assistant at UMass Amherst. Uh, we brought the program back and, and they're having tremendous success. And I like to, you know, I really enjoyed watching that success knowing I was there when the program started. And then after that, I went to uh, Providence College. Now, the last thing about Providence College, which I think is interesting, if I had had a son, I would have stayed on the men's side. But I have two daughters, wonderful daughters. I'm one of the luckiest. My wife and I are the luckiest parents in the world. They're such wonderful young women. But I couldn't think of a better environment for my daughters to be brought up in than a women's athletic environment. And I'd been an assistant for nine years, and I wanted to be a head coach. Back then, there were 46 Division One, um, 49 Division One men's teams, and there were 30 Division One women's teams. So there was basically 79 jobs, head coaching jobs, and this at the Division One level, for roughly 320 coaches. If each Division One men, actually, we'll call it 270, because each Division One men's program had four coaches, and the women's had at least two, if not three. So roughly there's, there's 270 job, jobs, uh, assistants for um, 79 jobs. And Providence opened up and I had a chance to get it. And I was fortunate enough to get it. And I couldn't think of a better environment for my daughters to be brought up in with all those tremendous role models um, to be around. And every time I look at my, my, my daughters, I see a little bit of all of my former players in them, male and female, but especially the female. And so I was at Providence for 19 years. We had a lot of success there. And then um, had the good fortune to go over to China and coach the women's professional team. And then before that season ended, I had a chance to work with their um, KHL team, the Cullen Red Star, where I was working on player development and scouting. And then went to a, a prospects camp. We had a prospects camp in, in, in Beijing. And then they offered me the goalie coaching job with the Cullen Red Star. And, um, I couldn't take the job. 10 months being away from my family without being able to come home was just something I, I couldn't do, um, especially for the money that they were, they were offering. And I think that's really important to know that as well. Um, and then I got a chance to coach the South African men's national team in the world championships in Sofia, Bulgaria, which was really cool. Um, hockey over in South Africa brings you back to um, the good old days, as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, it's so pure over there, boys playing with girls, men playing with women, women coaching men. Um, it's just, it's just an awesome part, uh, thing to be, be involved with. Um, and it's so pure. And then last year I got to coach in the East Coast Hockey League, um, with the Worcester Railers. Um, and, uh, and that's my career in a nutshell. Sorry to make it so long, but it's, uh, it's a lot of miles traveled. No, it's great to hear all the stops and, um, in terms of a long answer, I always tell people I've done 70 episodes or, or 70 odd episodes so far. And the last thing I want to do is hear myself talk. So I love it. But, um, you know, you had a number of different uh, teams that you would help out with over the years and some were assistant coaching roles, some were head coaching roles and, and some were um, other unique positions. And let's go back through a few of them. One of them I want to start with um, is your first head coaching role with Providence. Um, you know, obviously it's a little bit different now working with the women's team as opposed to men's that you had been doing prior, but just talk about how your role changed now in that assistant coach or the head coach role and uh, some of the tasks that you had to deal with on a daily basis. Yeah, there's some really interesting questions you just asked. And I, you know, I, I think 
you know, that was one of the biggest questions on the interview, you know, being a men's coach for so long, you know, what's, what's going to be the difference between coach and men and women? What do you see? And I don't see a difference. I just see an athlete who wants to be better. Does the, does the teacher teach the boy any different than the girl? For the most part, no, they teach them all the same. The really thing is about being a great communicator. And I view myself as a teacher more than a coach, just that, you know, my, my subject is hockey. You still have to learn how to communicate. Everyone's different. Um, you have to know how people learn. You know, how does this player learn? How does that player learn? So really, I don't see a boy or girl in front of me. I just see a, a hockey player wants to get, to be better. Um, the other thing too, but I really didn't think of an adjustment from being an assistant coach to a head coach. And I tell all assistant coaches this all the time that ask that say they're aspiring to be head coaches. Don't think like a head uh, assistant coach. You should always be thinking like a head coach because that allows you to be much more of an asset to the head coach. I'm more of a solution guy than, than I am a problem guy. So if I see a problem, I don't say we've got a problem. I'll say, we've got a situation. I think this, this should be the solution. And that's really what a head coach does is that they're the ones who, you know, solve problems that happen in their program. So if I can be uh, an assistant coach that not only sees a problem, but comes with a solution, then I'm making my head coach's job a lot easier. So think more as a head coach, even when you're an assistant. But I can say this though, I've been very blessed to be mentored or to call some of the greatest hockey minds in hockey um, friends of mine or mentors of mine, starting with Jack Parker and Ben Smith and Bill Beanie and Bob Johnson and Dave Peterson and Art Berglund and um, Timmy Taylor, John Cuniff. No matter where John Cuniff was in the world, if I picked up the phone and called him, he would call me back. And so just think about having the opportunity to, uh, and when you talk about goaltending, Joe Britannia, um, to have these people that would actually share their thoughts on hockey with me. And as a head coach, you don't take everything because I'm not Jack Parker, I'm not John Cunniff, I'm not Timmy Taylor, I'm Bob Durant. So you have to take things that work for you. So as I was going along as an assistant coach, if I get my own program or when I get my own program, this is what I would do. This is what relates to me or this is what fits me as a coach. And so when I finally got the opportunity to be a head coach. I had already had a philosophy. I had already had the, the image or the vision of the way I wanted to play. And, um, and for the most part, it, it has stayed intact um, all the way through, but you have to be true to yourself. But I was very fortunate to be able to talk hockey with some of the greatest minds, um, you know, to coach this sport and to be a sponge to soak, to soak it up. Yeah, I think any time that you can talk with people who have had key experiences in the game or have gone through the battle one or two times, it uh, it definitely helps in your own development and, and having your own questions answered. And then eventually when you have the head coaching role, you have your own philosophies in place. One of the places that a lot of people will meet these well-experienced people in the game or people with different mindsets is at the national level. And one of the things you didn't mention is you've had a number of opportunities to work with USA Hockey, you know, scouting with the Royal Junior Team and then coaching the women's team at the U18, U22 level and, and numerous roles with the program. So just talk about your experience with USA hockey overall and some of the key takeaways that you were able to, um, you know, take with you through those experiences. Yeah. I am so blessed to be involved with USA hockey. Um, I've been involved with USA hockey since 1989, which is a long time ago. Um, 
And every summer we would get to work with when I was on the men's side, you know, the best young people, young, you know, best young men uh, in the United States. And also some, you know, some of them weren't just um, national camps, they were selection camps too. So aspiring young athletes as well. Um, you know, having a chance to work with the men world junior, which is really interesting in that I was kind of on both sides of that. Uh, a gentleman named Ted Fay, when I was working at UMass Amherst, I was getting my master's degree in sports management. And a gentleman named Ted Fay um, was very involved along with Matt Cater in getting the world juniors to Massachusetts. So, and that was part of my uh, graduate work was to help you know, put all that together with them. And so not only to put it all together, but then to be asked by Coach Parker to be an advanced scout uh, for that team. So to get to work, look at all the international teams play and to put together scouting reports and videotapes uh, for that staff was a tremendous experience for me and really started to open up my eyes uh, to international hockey. The next assignment I had after that was um, the World Championships. You, you, I forget the year. I think it might have been 98. Um, the U.S did not perform well in the world championships. And Ben Smith asked if I would help him put together a team that would prevent the U.S. from being relegated. And I was telling people just the other day, that was probably the toughest assignment uh, I've ever had or been involved with because the tournament was in November. And there aren't a lot of hockey players or coaches available in November for such a big assignment to keep the U.S., you know, in the division one world championships and not being relegated. And uh, fortunately, Ben Smith was able to put together a team that um, I think all three uh, Broughton brothers played on that team. And anyways, they end up winning um, the relegation tournament and staying at the, at the uh, top division. Um, so that was a lot of fun, especially to watch the success that that team had. I think Joey Mullaney may have even played on that team as well. So we were going really deep, but they, they answered the call to uh, represent their country and they did a wonderful job. I thought that was probably the toughest assignment um, for all, that all of us had. Then um, in 2008, uh, I was fortunate. Michelle Amidon was the head of the women's program at USA Hockey, and she um, put together a coaching staff that was head by uh, Katie Stone for the first under-18 world championships for girls and um it's awesome when you get to be the first um to do something and actually canada was the heavily favored team in that tournament and uh, we ended up going five and oh win the gold medal um which really was a, a terrific feat for a lot of different reasons but to win the first uh, under 18 world championship gold medal um was was a very cool to be a part of and then What's interesting, and this just goes out there for the young coaches, I always wanted to coach the U.S. women's national team. In 2002, 2003, 2004, 2005, go all the way to 2014. They always said no. Um, not the right time. You're not the right person. You need to lo learn more. Um, so even in my coaching experiences, I had rejection. And again, my mother, 12 years old, you don't like the answer you get, honey? Then coach better become better. And so fortunately in 2000, but just think about that. So again, and all, people just see these successes, right? But they have no idea about the heartache that goes along with those in order to achieve those things. So in 2014, I was asked, which is a really interesting story. Um, Brett Hedigan was actually supposed to be the mentor coach in 2014 for Ken Cleek. Ken's a tremendous coach. He's going to coach 
Um, he's coaching his son right now out in Colorado, but eventually he's going to be a professional coach. He's going to do great things. But he was just, he just retired. And now um, Reagan Carey had asked him to be the head coach of the women's national program. And Brett Hedigan was supposed to be his mentor coach. And on the Friday before the camp was supposed to start, I got a call from Reagan asking if I would mind coming in and being the mentor coach because Brett Hedigan couldn't do it. Uh, San Jose either, he went from being radio to TV or something happened where he couldn't commit to it. So she asked me if I'd come in and I said, sure. And Ken and I didn't know each other. And um, I said, Ken, I'll do anything you need me to do. So, but over the course of it, um, we started to create a relationship. And um, after the camp was over, um, they asked if I would stay on. And there was, because it was an Olympic year, they were gonna have September camp. And so they asked if I could go to September camp. I said, sure, I'd be more than happy to go to September camp. And then it just kind of progressed to the point when then they asked me, you know, would you like to be a part of the, the coaching staff for the 2015 World Championship team? And I said, absolutely. I've been wanting to do this for a very, very long time. And um, we went on to win the gold medal and again, went 5-0 and um, in the World Championship. And, and to be honest with you, there was one team in that tournament. It was Team USA and then everybody else. We were up on Canada 5 nothing at one point in the gold medal game. And then they ended up tying at 5-5 and then we ended up winning 7-5. But it never really was a game. Even when they tied it, it wasn't a game. It was just incredible to watch um, the U.S. really become what, what they've become. And I really think it happened over the last, you know, last quad. Long story short, I was involved with that team right up until 2017 to the selection committee. I had the privilege to be a part of the selection committee for that uh, national team that went on to win gold medal uh, in 2018. But there was a lot of heartache from 2002 to 2014 because I wanted to be that coach be on that staff for a very long time and um, to have the opportunity to do that and go to the world championships. My wife came over with me. My, my youngest daughter came over in Malmo. Um, it was just an awesome experience. No, I, I think it, it's definitely um, speaks to, you know, sometimes opportunity you have to wait. And then when you eventually mm -hmm. get there, it, it's well worth the wait because you were able to yeah. uh, be a part of a championship team. But uh, I can tell you had a number of great experiences with USA hockey and, and others, um, you know, who are in the program and also viewing from abroad. You can see the development in terms of its ability in the hockey world. It's really grown is now one of, you know, arguably the top nation in the world competing, obviously, with Canada. Throughout your earlier answers, you also talked about a few experiences abroad, and maybe now we can go into those. Um, talk about your opportunity to coach uh, in China with the women's team and some player development with the men's as well, and basically how that situation came about and just your overall experience. Well, thanks for bringing that up. And, you know, before I, I move on to that, those experiences have allowed me to feel the way I don't work for USA Hockey. I speak for them. You know, I, I do coach education, you know, uh, presentations for them. Uh, I work at camps, but I don't work for them. Um, so I feel me saying this isn't solicited. Without question right now, USA Hockey is developing players. Their best practices around the world when it comes to developing players. Not only can you see in the world, you know, in the world juniors and so forth, but being around the world, I actually worked for the, I, the IIHF asked me to work their high performance camp and to basically mentor coaches from around the world in Vermaki, Finland which was a huge privilege for me. But being over in China, being in South Africa, being at the World Championships in Bulgaria, um, 
working in that IIHF camp um, makes me, I, I believe I'm qualified to say that. You know, I've gotten to witness um, other player development uh, going on around the world. And right now I believe you, that no one's doing it better than USA Hockey. And when that being said, and you, I know USA Hockey isn't resting on their laurels either. I know they're continuing to try and get better. Where can we get better? And let's continue to stay at the forefront. They won't tell you that they're the best, you know, because they're humble people. But um, I, again, not working for them and not being a part of it, uh, I feel very comfortable saying it that I've been around the world and no one's doing better than them. And that's why I think I got the opportunities to, to work in China. Um, after I left Providence, um, the Canadian Women's Hockey League was the best professional women's hockey league in the world. No offense to the NWHL uh, at the time uh, or anything over in Europe, but the Canadian Women's Hockey League was the best women's hockey, professional women's hockey league in the country. They had all the, uh, in the world, they had all the, the Olympians for the most part, both Canadian, American, European were all playing in that league. And every night you saw the best women's hockey in the world on display. It was fascinating. And it was such a privilege to be a part of. Um, and then coaching the Chinese team had its own unique challenges in that at that point, which has changed now, Kunlun Red Star was basically the developmental organization for the 2022 Olympics in Beijing. So it was twofold. We had a, a limit on the number of North Americans or Europeans we could have, which was seven. And then all the rest of the team had to be made up of Chinese or Chinese nationals, meaning Chinese people with Chinese heritage, even though they may be North American, um, that would be able to qualify uh, and for citizenship to be in the 2022 Olympics. So now you're playing against teams that are full of national team players, high level college players. Um, and then we're going in there with seven uh, North American or European players and the rest trying to develop national players. And it was awesome. It was an awesome challenge. Um, the players were terrific. They worked, they worked so hard. Um, the mentors, meaning the North Americans and the, and the European players were terrific mentors um, uh, to the Chinese players and the Chinese heritage players. Um, but just the caliber of hockey and to be a part of that was, was tremendous. And then I got an opportunity uh, to move over. My friend Scott McPherson was the general manager of uh, Kunlun Red Star uh, uh, men's program in the KHL. And he asked if um, I'd be interested in going to the men's side. And, you know, I'm 50. You know, I'm 55 years old and uh, I still have goals and dreams, you know, college hockey, um, pro hockey. Um, I just want to continue to expand my horizons. So this was an opportunity to, again, expand my horizons. I've never been afraid of a challenge, especially when it comes to hockey. And so the opportunity to scout the American Hockey League, look for players with one year left on their contract that could possibly come over and help Cullen, you know, be successful in the KHL was a great opportunity for me. Um, and then from that role, we had to have a development camp over in Beijing to go over to Beijing and work with those athletes. Again, trying to create a men's team that is going to win or compete for a medal in the 2022 Olympics was awesome. So I had the opportunity to work on both sides uh, for that. Uh, that model has changed since uh, over in China. Uh, what I thought was really interesting about the Chinese uh, is that they bring people over um, to help them. And sometimes um, you may bring a, an opinion to the table and uh, they, they'll disagree and we'll 
basically not do that. So, um, but those were some of the hurdles and um, that you went through, but that's fine. You know, they're the people that are in charge and you do what they want you to do. But uh, it was a wonderful experience. And while I was doing the player development stuff, uh, I got a call from a friend of mine, Mark Kumpel, um, who was the commissioner of the uh, Eastern Hockey League at the time, the junior league. And he could not uh, help the South Africans uh, this that that spring get ready for the world championships. And he knew that I was doing player development. And so that wasn't an everyday thing. And the way it worked over in South Africa is I'd go over for three weeks, I'd come home for three weeks, I'd go over. And so it, it worked perfectly for the development stuff that I was doing. And so basically I went over to South Africa. Um, it was beautiful. Cape Town was beautiful. Johannesburg, a little bit different. Um, but what's really cool about those experiences, their rinks are in malls or the rinks are in casinos and public skating is what keeps them open. So hockey is played either at night or real early in the morning, but during the prime time, it's all about public skating, which is completely different here. Public skating works around the hockey, whether it be in Canada or whether it be here in the U S um, in their rinks in South Africa, there is glass behind the net. That's it. And there's glass, there is no glass on the sides. And believe it or not, the puck very rarely left the rink. And there were people that were sitting literally 10 feet on the sides with this puck going around a million miles an hour. But the puck very rarely left the building, which was really kind of cool. And lastly, they had gas Zambonis. So just imagine the exhaust inside the rink. That would never fly in Canada and that would never fly in the US. Carbon monoxide poisoning was at a high level there, but they love the game. And uh, they are, it's so pure over there. And it, they have to overcome so many hurdles to play the game. That just makes you want to help them even more. And then to go with them over to the world championships was, and play against countries that have many, many, many more resources than they had, but it didn't matter. They didn't make any excuses. They expected to win just like everybody else, even though the, the deck was stacked against them. Yeah, it's, it's just incredible to hear anytime, um, you know, a coach from North America or, or around the world can get involved with these programs. And throughout the podcast, we've heard people have experiences with um, Estonia and Ukraine and Korea, uh, just to name a few. I know I'm missing some, but, uh, you know, you really see the passion at the grassroots level and it kind of brings you back maybe to um, where it all started for a lot of coaches and, and really makes you want to put in that extra effort to get them to a level that, you know, maybe a lot of those players don't feel is a possibility, but, um, you know, they dealing with their hurdles and whatnot. And, you know, once you leave an experience like that, it kind of um, refuels you to take on that next challenge. And for you, that would ultimately lead you to the ECHL level and now the D3 level in NCAA. Uh, just talk about your experience with the Railers and your upcoming uh, university college experience and, um, just kind of your thoughts and, and on where you are now as a coach and what you want to do in the next couple of years. You know, you only get to go this way once. And the fact that I've had the privilege to be able to go uh, live my life, basically teaching the game of hockey around the world is an unbelievable privilege. Hockey's hockey. You know, a lot of people say, you know, men's, women's, boys, girls, uh, it, it doesn't matter to me. It's the game. I'm in search of the perfect practice. I'm in search of the perfect game. Um, how good can I be? 
you know, I'm trying to talk with uh, my friend Brian DeRocher, and we were talking about other things, but just keep honing your craft. And that's all I'm doing is just trying to become a better coach. And these people have given me the opportunity to continue to work, you know, to hone my craft. And um, I really enjoyed working with the Worcester Rillies. You know, like I said, I'm 55 years old, and I want to be a pro coach. Even though I'm a professional coach, when you talk about it, whether you're a college coach or whether you're coaching over in China, whether you're coaching over in I'm a professional coach. That's what I do for a living right now. It's not uncommon for me to be working with pros in the morning and eight-year-old girls at night and loving every second of it because it doesn't matter. I'm teaching this great game, and I'm trying to teach it the way I think it should be played. Um, I'm changing as a coach every day. I'm changing my philosophies every day just because, as Mike Boyle said to me uh, two years ago when I met with him, he says, I can't believe I was coaching or teaching Back then, he goes, I'm actually kind of embarrassed what I was doing back then. Because we all evolve. The game evolves. Uh, the knowledge evolves. The science evolves. And so it, I'm evolving still. And we will always constantly evolve. And so to have an opportunity to go you know, coach with David, kind of, which, is, which was a great opportunity. I'm very appreciative to David. Um, you know, I mentioned his dad, John, kind of was a very big mentor of mine. Well, I never got to repay John the favor. Um, um, or to repay him at all, just to say thank you, um, because he we, we lost him you know too early and, and so soon. So I had a debt, and when David became became the head coach at the Worcester with the Worcester Rillers, um, unfortunately the team wasn't doing very well at the time when he got the job, and um, he didn't have an assistant coach. And so I told him, you know, David, I'd be more than happy to help you. And again, he said, Bob, I can't pay. I said, David. I don't want to be paid. I don't need to be paid. I have a debt that I need to repay. And I couldn't think of a better way to repay that debt to your dad than to help you out. And so that's how I got to work with David and, uh, and the Worcester Railers. And what an unbelievable organization. What's really interesting is when the Worcester Railers came to Worcester, I actually went to that original press conference. Uh, a friend of mine, Toby O'Brien, who I played goal with in Johnstown, was the president. And they were announcing the Worcester Real Organization coming into Worcester, and he called me and asked me if I'd come to the press conference. And I said, absolutely, I'll be more than, I would love to be there, and I'm honored that you'd ask me. So the Realist Organization means a lot to me um, for a lot of different reasons, and not just because they're, they're a professional hockey team, but more importantly, because I was there from the, from the inception of, uh, of the organization. And I live in Shrewsbury, which is just outside of Worcester. So um, the chance that I could help out that organization um, it was a great opportunity for me, but more importantly, a chance for me um, to help an organization that I think very much of and it's a privilege to be a part of. And I guess from working at Worcester, and they practice in the Fidelity Bank Worcester Ice Center, it's where Worcester State uh, plays and practices out of. I guess they knew that I was basically a volunteer with the Worcester Railers. And hey, there's this hockey guy. He's available if you're interested in the uh, filling that position. And so I got a call from Mike Mudd, who actually was goalie at St. Lawrence, which I was a goalie at BU. Uh, he was the president of the Worcester Sharks organization when uh, they were here in Worcester. And when Worcester, when the uh, Sharks left, Mike had already started to bring up his family and raise his children here, him and his wife, that um, he decided to stay and took on the head coaching, uh, the athletic director's job at Worcester State. So Mike called me. It's a part-time job at Worcester State. Um, 
but it fits in with all the other part-time jobs I've got going on. So um, I guess you'd, you'd call me the king of the part-time job. Uh, but it fit perfectly, and I'm very excited about that opportunity. It's another level to coach at. Uh, I'm trying to get up to speed as fast as I can. I don't officially take over till the end of uh, this academic year, uh, but I've already been out doing some recruiting and trying to see the, you know, the, the, the prospects that are out there that we could possibly bring in for next year. But um, I really owe it to um, John Coughlin Jr. and uh, Shane Toporowski, the outgoing coaching staff. They've done a really good job of laying a terrific foundation, which we hope to build up. You've been able to have these experiences, and it's just great to hear everything and, and how it's worked. And a lot of times uh, people talk about hockey, how you kind of have to have, you know, it feels like a million part-time roles at different times, and, and that's just the nature of the business. So um, others can relate to that as well. But, um, you know, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about uh, from an earlier response is the talking about that transition to the head coaching role. And you kind of talked about how, you know, even as an assistant coach, you always approached it almost as a head coach to develop that, um, philosophy and thought process in your game. Uh, with that in mind, how important do you feel it is to first work as an assistant coach before being a head coach? Or do you think it's something that you kind of jump into um, maybe at a lower level? Yeah, that's that's a great question. You know, I think one of the greatest experiences I ever had was bringing the program back at UMass Amherst. Because when you start a program from scratch, I could never do it again. Because the only thing that gets you through when you start a program from scratch, it's the expectation of tomorrow. And you know something? Tomorrow is just as hard as today. It takes tremendous. I mean, you have to come up with policies. You have to come up with uniforms, design uniforms. You've got to come up with equipment policies. I mean, it is crazy what you need to do in order to start a program from scratch. And so that experience allowed me to understand everything within an organization. And when I say organization, I'm talking about a hockey organization, not just a college organization, ordering equipment, equipment policies, teaching. Uh, we had to bring in an equipment man and a lot of, we couldn't find experienced ones. So we had to actually help the experience want, you know, gain experience and how we wanted to do things. So having that kind of experience, I told you how important strength and conditioning was to my success strength and conditioning made me a viable division one athlete so strength and conditioning is very important to be a successful as you can see now nhl is elite athletes they train year-round it's not just where it used to be back in the 50s 60s and 70s where you played hockey you did nothing in the summers right and then training camp was actually training camp where you got ready to play for the season now you better be ready for training camp or you're not going to be able to play so you've got those types of things. So the point I'm making is that you need to experience, if you want to be a head coach, you need to, before you get there, what will really help you is experiencing every position in your organization. Like I said, I was a goalie coach. I was a recruiter. I was helping design equipment policy. I broke down video. I did, I did travel plans. I, for the team, I mean, there isn't anything within an organization that I haven't physically done myself. And I think that has really allowed me uh, the opportunity to relate to anybody who's involved in my staff, because I've done that job before. And I think that's invaluable. Even to this day, I tell people, there's nothing beneath me as a head coach. I'll sweep the floors. Okay. I'll fix, I even, I'll, I'll share a, a real, uh, another story with you. So 
when I got to dress for the first time at BU, I didn't get to pack my bag. The, the, um, the backup goalie wasn't going to be able to make it. So they called me to meet them at the airport. And I met them at the airport. Uh, Cleon Daskalakis and Kyle James. Cleon Daskalakis played with the Boston Bruins. He's All-American at BU. I mean, he was, he was all everything. He was a senior, and I was this bright-eyed rookie. And he packed my bag. and So we get to the hotel room, and I say to Cleon, Cleon's getting ready for the game. And I go, Cleon, do you think my jersey's in my bag? He goes, I don't know. You know, it's no big deal to him, but for me, it's a big deal. And if my jersey was in my bag, is my name on the back of my jersey? Because if my name's on the back of my jersey, then maybe I can be a part of this. Maybe I am an important, you know, a, you know, a, a part that's being relied on. If my name isn't on the back of my jersey, then I'm just a schmuck. You know, I'm an afterthought. And I'll never forget opening up my bag and there's my, my BU jersey. And my heart's going a million miles an hour. I'm going, this is going to be the moment of truth. Am I going to, am I part of this or am I just, a, you know, just an expendable part? And I pick up the jersey, I turn around and my name, Duraney's on the back of it. Now, why do I share that story with you? I share that story with you because when I went to Dartmouth, we had 30 guys on the roster. We didn't have scholarships. We had financial aid. So we had a big roster. And the equipment guy at the time, we didn't put, and again, we had a big roster, small budget. And we had name tags for every player, but we didn't have them on every jersey. And so when a player was going to play for the first, I'll never forget this. Even if it was the only time he was going to play, I'll never forget this. The equipment guy at Dartmouth said, I'm not putting the name on the jersey. I go, he's playing tonight. He needs to have his name on his jersey. He goes, I'm not putting the name on it. He's only going to play for one game. I end up sewing the name tag on the back of my jersey myself because I remember how much it meant to me. And so, again, I share this with you because as a head coach, you're a servant leader. It's not about you. It's about everyone below you. And when I say below you, you're the captain of the ship. Your assistants want to become head coaches. You need to develop them. Your equipment guy wants to move on to be an equipment guy maybe somewhere else. You need to develop them. You need to teach them. You need to mentor them. But most importantly, it's about your players. It's their team. It's their goals and dreams. And it's your responsibility as the head coach, most importantly, to help get them closer to their goals and dreams than they were before they got to you. That's what my role is. And that's what I've learned going up because of all the unbelievable coaches that I've had the opportunity to be coached by and to be mentored by. And that's why I love this job so much. Because it goes back to if I can help a young person as much as my coaches have helped me, then my time on this earth has been worthwhile. Whether you're an eight-year-old girl or whether you're, an, you know, whether you're an aspiring professional trying to get to the NHL. But I better know my job and I better know what I'm teaching. And that's the biggest, that's, and that's why I continue to develop. And it's my responsibility because these people have put their trust and faith in me. And I better be up for the task. Yeah, it, it's such a true fact that you you really want to make the people that have helped you proud. And um, that kind of ties into the fact that you definitely want to go through those experiences before being put in a maybe a head coaching role or any kind of leadership role. Because uh, the reality is, un unless you've gone through the battle and, and tried those different positions, you, you really can't relate. So 
um, you know, with your background and the number of experiences that you had, it, it was, uh, you know, more of a seamless transition. And I'm sure there was still some new things to learn and trial and error process. It's never seamless, Ryan. Ryan, it's yeah. never seamless. Yeah, yeah, definitely never seamless. So it's always a learning process. And, and even the people at the highest level will say that. Um, another thing that you probably learned in a few different positions and you can provide some guidance on is working in international tournaments. Um, you know, moving into those tournaments, a lot of times it might be a new roster, uh, you know, working with different coaches. What's the process for preparing for these tournaments? And due to time restraints, does it kind of differ in what you would generally do maybe in an off season preparing for a season with a team or any other similar situation? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, and before I answer that, I just want to go back. There's a great quote out there by uh, Bruce Arians. He made this a few years ago when he was with the Arizona Cardinals. He said, at 30, I thought I knew everything. At 62, I realized I know nothing. Well, and that's so, it's so true because at 30, you're trying to prove you belong. You're trying to, you know, you, you, you got to stand for something and you got to make people believe in you. So you got to dig your heels in and, and you, and you got to believe you're an authority. When you have a little success and you get to my age and I'm not 62, I'm 55, now 56, but I'm smart enough to know that there are things I don't know. And I need to be, I need to make myself aware of those things. And that's what I think a lifelong learner is all about, but it's understandable. You know, I'm in a different part of my career than I was when I was 30. You know, I'm a lot more open to suggestion now because I have some worn tread on these tires type of thing. You know, but I, I love that quote. I think it, it nails it right on the head in the different stages of your, your, your career. Okay. So that's why I'm not afraid to say it's not seamless. When you take a new job, there's things you don't know. And you're going to have to make, you know, based on experiences that you've had, you're going to have to make decisions on what the right way is and what the wrong way is. And, and the cliche out there, success is built off of failure. Without question, it's true. Okay. I'm not afraid to try new things. I may crash and burn with that. Okay. But at least I tried it. You know, is there a better way to do it? That's what I'm in search of. Is there a better way? Instead of just resting and maintaining, I'm not about maintaining. I told you, I'm in search of perfection. And is there a better way to do it? And what a great odyssey I'm on right now. And to your point, that leads perfectly to talking about playing, you know, coaching national teams. I was just saying this to, you know, again, I, I talk hockey all the time and I'm very fortunate that that's basically the, the meat of the conversations that I have is that I think the biggest mistake people can make when they take over a national team is to give them too much um, in a short amount of time. They're on the national team because they're the best players. And so the best thing you can do as a coach is to put a framework in place just to put everybody on the same page and then get out of their way and let them do what they do best. That's why they're there. Um, and I think that's why we had so much success in 2000. When, you know, I told you that we weren't expected to win in 2008. Well, after we selected the 2000, um, in 2007 uh, selection camp for the 2008 under 18 world championship team, we got killed by Canada in a three game series. I mean, absolutely killed. I mean, it was Canada and there was only one team on the ice and it was them. And so Coach Stone and I think it was Coach um, Aaron Witten Hamlin and myself made up the coaching staff. And we had to really evaluate where we were at the time and the, the players that we had selected. And we could have been stubborn and said, these are the best players. But we realized some of the mistakes we had made, not the players' fault, it's our fault. Okay. And so during the fall, we actually went out and we actually switched out um, a number of players. 
that didn't make it originally that ended up being with that team that went to, to Calgary in 2008. And like I said, um, was a much better uh, balanced team, uh, a more cohesive team. But most importantly, we got out of their way. We set up, put a framework in place and then let them fill in the color. And by doing that, um, allowed the best part of our teams to shine through and end up winning. Same thing with in 2015, uh, Ken Klee was tremendous, um, tremendous coach, is a tremendous coach and did a wonderful job of empowering the players, giving them confidence, putting a, a very, um, I'm not gonna call it simple because these players aren't simple, um, but putting in a, a framework in place that allowed them all to be at their very best. And the style of play that we played allowed us to use our offensive minded defensemen and really five interchangeable players and to watch it come to life in front of us. We had the best seat in the house to watch uh, the best players in the world do what they do best um, against, the, you know, some of the other best talent in the world do it. It was, it was phenomenal. Um, so, I mean, that's the biggest thing. What the really cool thing is it's like, um, an international summit of hockey. Everyone wants to share. You've got the Russians, you've got the Germans, you've got the Canadians, you've got the Finns, you've got the Swedes, and we're all there and we're, we're all talking hockey, you know, learning from each other. And um, that's probably, besides the games themselves, I think that was what I enjoyed the most is talking to the other countries, uh, coaches and learning from them, um, which has really, you know, played a part in, you know, the way I see the game. Yeah, anytime you can get an international event and, and talk with people who come from different cultures, different backgrounds, overall different experiences, there's a lot to learn. And, you know, that kind of transitioned into uh, something I wanted to talk about in my hockey resource. They're a community on Discord and they have coaches from all levels of the world. Um, I've connected with coaches in Finland and, and different countries through the platform myself. And um, you talk hockey and just learn different things about their careers and, and some things that you can take in your own jobs. So, for anybody listening to the podcast who would like to learn through this and connect with people on different topics, be sure to check out my hockey resource on Twitter and Instagram. Bob, one of the things that they do on that platform, which is a little different, is they talk about resources, whether it's books, articles, um, websites, programs that you can get into uh, to learn about the game. For you personally, uh, I know you like to learn from conversation, but is there any other programs or resources that you have used over the years that you would suggest to others in the game? I do, you know, the whole, you know, and I'm not getting paid for this, you know, to promote these two things, but um, the first one is a you know, hockey coaches site. It's excellent. There is so much resources, presentations, uh, things that they do um, invaluable. Um, the NHL mentor program, uh, which I was a part of last year and this year uh, is another tremendous resource where you can get in there and, and just learn from the best, you know, and, uh, I'm a, you talk about being sponge. I'm a sponge. I mean, I can't get enough watching how people do things, the way they would do things. Um, the, when I went over to China, um, you'll find this very interesting. There's a, there's a um, and again, I'm not getting paid to promote this, you know, the communication gap, you know, the different language. And so I needed to find a software that would allow me to send practice to the Chinese players the night before, but I sent it to everybody, but primarily for the Chinese players. So they could have practice ahead of time. So they would know what we were going to do the next day. And not only was, we, was I sending them practice, but through this software, you could actually watch it. You could, if you could go 3d, you could go um, position specific. You could just watch it standard on top of it. 
And so they not only could read, you know, I'm sure they could translate it, what the drill was or the activity that we were going to be doing, but more importantly, they can conceptually see what, what the drill was going to look like. And they could look at it from their position. It's called hockey coach vision. And it is, it is just an awesome tool that helped, I believe, level the playing field because all I spoke was English, um, level the playing field for the Chinese players so that they could, when they came to practice, they would be as confident as the uh, English speaking uh, players were as well. Um, one of the most humbling experiences I had when I went over to the IIHF um, high performance camp in Verimaki, Finland, I was humbled over there and I felt very inadequate because I could only communicate in English, but yet here were all these European, Asian, and um, Middle Eastern countries trying to communicate with me in English. And most of them could sp speak multiple languages, especially the Europeans. They could speak two, three, four, five languages. And here I am only able to speak one language. I felt so inferior that they were trying to communicate with me on my terms and I couldn't meet them halfway. I felt so inadequate and I felt so helpless and, and uh, um, you know, they, they were so gracious in, in understanding uh, my inadequacies. Um, but that was really a humbling experience for me to see how diverse and how, uh, and uh, not, not intelligent, but just how multidimensional the people and the athletes in other countries are and how accommodating they are and how the best word I can use inadequate I was to try and communicate with them effectively. It worked, but mostly because of their effort, not mine. No. So anything I could do. And I think that is what made me think about the Chinese situation and how can I be less inadequate and actually make it uh, um, an even playing field or even more of an advantage for them. Yeah, it's definitely just one of those things that, um, you know, once you experience firsthand, you, you'll then have it in the back of your mind and look to use a program like you mentioned that uh, can maybe even the, the playing field a little bit in terms of the communication and um, a number of great things you mentioned there. And a lot of these things that you've talked about throughout our interview have come from experiences that you've had yourself or experiences that other pe people have shared with you. And you've used the word mentor a number of times. And uh, at this point in the conversation, I always like to go back and just mention them again. So, Bob, if you could one more time, just talk about a few of the key mentors who helped you throughout your career and then the lessons that they taught you collectively. Sure. It's a tremendous question. And I think because now it makes me really contemplate and go back. Uh, you know, the first one I always talk about is Jack Parker, um, the head coach at Boston University. Not because he, again, you know, he was such a great educator that he taught me about hockey. And a lot of my foundation of my hockey philosophy is based on what he taught us as hockey players. We always felt like we were prepared every time we came to the rink. Uh, he taught me that, um, you know, Bill Belichick said it, but Jack Parker actually introduced me to it. He said, Bill Belichick said, practice ex execution is game day reality. Well, Jack Parker was practicing that back in 83, 84, you know, when I was there and all the way 83 to 87 we would practice the way we were going to play. And if we didn't practice the way he expected us to play on, on Friday and Saturday nights, um, we knew we weren't going to play well. So he's again, creating a game environment, but more importantly, the way he impacted young men, um, you know, people say he's got two daughters and 232 sons. And that's the way we all feel is that when times are at its worst, that's when coach Parker was at his best. And so uh, I don't try and, you know, 
be my player's greatest teacher. That's not there, you know, but I know I have that opportunity for the young people that want it. Okay. And so it's not like I'm out there trying to change every kid. That's, that's, it doesn't work that way. It's knowing that I do have that opportunity um, to make a difference in young people's lives. If that's what they're looking for in front of, they just want to be hockey players, you know, and it's, and that's fine too. But it's more to me, he taught me it's more than just a game. We're teaching life lessons through this game. Um, the second one was Ben Smith. Uh, he made me think about the game differently. Don't look at the status quo. You know, he's the one who brought Mike Boyle to Boston University of Strength and Conditioning. That there's a lot of things that go into making a hockey player a successful hockey player, not just what he does on the ice. Okay. And now you're creating an environment that brings out the very best in them. And then when you see that, See if you can do it better. I mean, he's an innovator, and he's made me look at that game in that sense. Uh, Billy Beanie, you know, he talks about practicing with small games, you know, and what I took away from, from Coach Beanie, one, being a great mentor, but more importantly, um, it's not just about developing physical skills. You've got to develop mental skills, and you've got to create an environment that allows people to think fast, not just play fast. What good is playing fast if you're not thinking fast? Hard work without purpose is wasted effort. And a lot of people are going to go out there and they're going to work hard. But if they're not working in the right things, then they're wasting that time and energy. So it's really important to maximize what you're doing with these athletes. Their time valuable too. Don't waste it. So make sure you got purposeful practice going on. Um, I talked about Tim Taylor being a gentleman of the game. Uh, he was soft-spoken, mild-mannered, but he was always about fair play. You win with class, you lose with class. You know, if you ever watched him and the way he, he was a true gentleman. And I'd like to think, and he treated everybody the same. Whether it was the equipment guy, whether it was the janitor, whether, you know, he, he just was just such an, honest, for all his talent and all his success, he was just a very unassuming man. You know, um, Bob Johnson, this is a really funny story. Uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins, I had a lot of friends who were playing for Pittsburgh at the time, and I was working at Dartmouth. and. Pittsburgh was um, playing the Boston Bruins, but there was a pregame skate. My best friend played for them at the time. So I said to Ben, I got to go recruit in Boston uh, early in the day. Do you mind if I, I leave a little early? I want to go catch the pregame skate. He goes, yeah, go down there and make sure you see Coach Johnson for me and tell him I said hi. I said, you got it. Gave me a good excuse to go down and, and, and see Coach Johnson. So I go to the game and uh, the, the pregame skate at the Garden and the practice is over. I talk to my friends and then I say, hey, is Coach Johnson around? And they go, uh, yeah, he's, he's back there. I go, I have a friend of his who wanted me to say hi to him. So sure, no problem. So I walk in there and I probably shouldn't say this, but he is butt naked. And as I walk in and it didn't even phase him. And he's got the pictures of Paul Coffey, uh, Mario Lemieux. Um, I want to say Bob Airy, Rob Brown, uh, and maybe Zali Zalapsky at the time. I don't know, but he's talking about, he's got the, he's got this rug down and it's a rink and he's got these pucks. And, he, and I go, hi, Coach Johnson. My name is Bob Duraney and um, Ben Smith. Oh, Benny, make sure you tell him I say hi, hi to him for me. I said, I will. He wanted me to say hi to you. He goes, hey, what do you think of this power play? Now, I'm just co I'm, I'm the restricted earnings guy at Dartmouth. My second year coaching college hockey. I was a goalie coach the first year at Northeastern. My first year. And he's asking me about the power play. And to just talk about humility and humble and, and just, just – you can learn from everybody. 
And that's what I learned from Coach Johnson. And the other thing I learned about Coach Johnson is I don't think Mario Lemieux would be who he is today if it wasn't for Coach Johnson. When I would go to those pregame skates, he would come out and he put his eye. If you remember Mario Lemieux, the Pittsburgh Penguins weren't very successful in the first few years of Mario Lemieux. And I'll, this is a story I remember that I was told by one of my friends. I wasn't there for this, but I did watch it from afar. The guys would be stretching and Mario Lemieux would have his, he, he would be reading the paper as the guys were stretching and he wouldn't, he wouldn't be involved, you know, because he was the best player. Him and Wayne Gretzky were the best players in the world at the time. Right. And when Bob Johnson got there and again, I'm going from afar, but I don't think this is a coincidence because I would, I was observing this and also hearing this. He would come out and he'd go right over to Mario Lemieux and he'd put his arm around him. And he, they would skate around the rink. And I could just imagine what was being said there. And I, I think what was going on was he was mentoring in how to be a leader, how to really reach his full potential. Because as soon as Bob Johnson got there, they won Stanley Cups. As soon as they got there, Mario Lemieux became the player he was going, you know, he was destined to become. And so with Bob Johnson, it's just that humility that he had. And the the uh, ability to bring out the very best in people. He brought out the very best in me that day because he made me think. He made me contemplate. He made me feel valued. Even though I was this rookie of a rookie who he knew nope, you know, and ever since then, I, I always felt very comfortable going up and, and saying hi to him and talking hockey with him and so forth and so on. Um, so those are a few people that come to mind immediately. I'm sorry I didn't, you know, I, I couldn't announce, you know, mention all of them. It'd be a very long list. The last one is John Cuniff. I have to mention John. He was a scientist before there were scientists. Worked to rest ratios um, about creating habits. And I have this formula that I think he set me on the course to it. But I, I believe that, you know, I'm going to I'm coining this this equation. Habits create instincts that create actions, that create results. And I really believe I got that from John Cuniff. Not in those words particularly, but that's what he instilled in me. And to just think, if you have great habits, you're going to have great instincts that are going to result in great actions, which are going to result in great results. If you have crappy habits, they're going to create crappy instincts that are going to create crappy actions that are going to create crappy results. So what are we as coaches holding our players accountable to? If we are not holding to great habits, then we don't have any chance at great results. We don't. It might happen by luck, but it's not going to happen consistently. So to watch John work his craft and put a little science into it, work to restoration, which allows you to create good habits. Because if you run your kids into the ground, he plays into the ground, they're not going to create great habits. You're actually going to create bad habits. So, you know, th those are five people right there. Yeah, five people right there that I think have had a tremendous impact on who I am today as a coach, why I coach, and um, why I'm in seek of more, in search of more, or I seek more. Yeah, you really don't know who is going to leave an impact in your career, but um, along the way, it's very apparent that you had a number of different people, and and while all involved in coaching, for the most part, they, uh, they definitely taught you different aspects of the coaching role and of the game, and it's kind of developed your coaching philosophy to this day. Uh, before we go into the final question, I promised Steve Nightingale I would ask you a, a quick question, and and he wanted to know your thoughts on uh, English bacon. English bacon? Yes. 
hey, any type of bacon is good. <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. And I thought I'd throw that in, but um, <laughs> that's pretty funny. That yeah, pretty go, funny. <laughs> going back to the serious note, um, as a final question, it doesn't look asked, the same as our bacon. I'll tell you no, that. No, it that's took me a while. Sure. It took me a while to really trust it. <laughs> <laughs> that's so cool. How nice did I? I will. I will. English bacon. So as a final question on the podcast, looking back in time, maybe going back to yourself when you were looking to make the transition to the hockey operations coaching world or someone who's also looking to make that transition and get in the game, what's one final piece of advice that you would give them in hopes that they would be successful? I think the most important thing is you you have to want to make a difference. You know, people told me what, and this, is, this will go for everything. What is living a fulfilled life? And I did, I, this happened by accident to me. Um, but I read something that said, if you want to live a fulfilled life, see what the world is missing and fill it. And that's what I think, why, that's what I think I'm doing. And so when you talk about getting into something, okay, hey, if you're really good at something, money will follow. But I never took anything for the money. I never took a job for the money. I took the job because I believe it would make a difference or that I'd have the opportunity to make a difference. Mine just happens to be hockey. No, it's my passion. I said this to you before. It's my passion. It's my love. I fell in love with this game when I was a kid. I don't know how, and I don't know why, but all I know is it's a love affair. And so go in search of what you have a love affair about. And the other thing too, is the reason why the, these besides Jack Parker and, and Ben Smith, I was never afraid to go up to somebody and ask for their help. You know, what's the worst thing I can say? Sorry, I don't have time for you. No problem. But if I, you know, goes back to that woulda, coulda, shoulda. My wife tells me all the time, Bob, you're going to have to sacrifice something. No, I'm not going to sacrifice anything. Life is too short for me to sacrifice. So I'm going to go up and ask that person. And if they say no, no problem. But most of the time, 99.9% of the time, they're so I, I have to share this other story with you really quickly. My wife works at the Brigham Women's Hospital in Massachusetts, in Boston. She worked for the, in the renal division. And the renal division has to do with the kidney. In 1954 was the first solid organ transplant. This doctor, Dr. Joe Murray, it was the Herrick brothers. One Herrick brother had kidney failure and they needed to, they wanted to transplant one kidney from one twin to the other so that he would live. Now, back then that was illegal. That was illegal. That went against all of medical. You never endangered a healthy human being to um, save another. It just wasn't done. So Dr. Murray had to rally the medical community, the political community, the religious community, as well as the, the, the administration of the hospital to do this. Long story short, Dr. Murray successfully transplants the first solid organ, the kidney, into the other, the other Herrick brother. He lived for eight years. He ended up marrying his caregiver, okay? So here we are, 2004, 50 years later, my wife is invited to the 50th anniversary celebration of the first solid organ transplant. This guy changed humanity. 
He changed the way we, we, we are now implanting heart, transplanting hearts, lungs. It's amazing what we did. This was the first guy. He was the, in 2004, he was the only person left from that team to produce that change in humanity. So this is worth, there were only 500 people in the room. This was worthy of 5,000 people being in the room to hear him recount the story. After it's over, I go down. I said, honey, I need to meet Dr. Murray. <laughs> now, this is so out of my field, okay? I'm a hockey coach, but this is so out of my field. But I have to meet this gentleman. I go up and I wait in line and I go and I introduce, hi, Dr. Murray, my name is Bob Duray. Like, he even cares, right? He made me feel like I was the most important person in the conversation. He wanted to know who I was, why I was there, what I do for a living. Obviously, I asked him my questions. That's the sign of true greatness to me. This guy changed the world. He made me feel like I was the most important person in the conversation, not him. I also learned something else from this in meeting. So he's on this tour to meet people, you know, to celebrate this amazing accomplishment. My wife sees him. My wife told me this story. He's two weeks later, uh, Dr. Murray's leaving about 10 o'clock in the evening, the evening, you know, he's been, it started at eight. He's, you know, a little tired. He's, and my wife says, Dr. Murray, do you need a ride home? And he says, no, Michelle, I'm all set. Um, I have my ride coming at midnight. My wife Lee is leaving the event and who's sitting on the bench outside Dr. Murray. His ride has forgot him. Can you believe that? So what I've learned is that what is true greatness? True greatness is making the person you're with feel important, not yourself. The second thing is if a guy like him can be forgotten, we all can be forgotten. So the fact that you asked me to come on your show today is a privilege, one that I'm honored, because there's going to come a time and place when people will forget who I am and what I've done. And I know that, but it's an absolute privilege for you to ask me to be on this show. And I want to thank you for that. No, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. And, um, you know, that's something that I always enjoy with the podcast is, is going through and meeting different people. And, uh, you know, I'll tell people outright that me and you had never talked before this conversation. And it's really just an opportunity to kind of get to know somebody. And, um, you know, I've been privileged to do 70 plus interviews to date and, and most of them have been new encounters so for sharing your information today and going into a number of great stories and and making us laugh as well i appreciate you coming on and um you know i wish you all the best moving forward here with your career and um, staying involved in the game in general thank you very much it's been a pleasure i really enjoyed our conversation today all right me as well take care I'd like to once again thank Bob for coming on the podcast and providing a ton of in-depth information on the topic of coaching and hockey. With a strong understanding of the players and the personalities within the game, it added a unique dynamic to the interview, and I believe others are coming out of the conversation with a better grasp on the game as a result. If you would like to get in touch with Bob to learn more about his experiences, I encourage you to reach out to him directly, or you can contact Hockey Minds Podcast at Outlook.com and I can help make that connection for you. Next on the podcast, I'll be joined by Jason Deskins, Assistant General Manager and Director of Scouting with the Omaha Lancers. 
Jason brings a lot of knowledge to the table in the area of scouting and the junior scouting process, so stay tuned for that release on Sunday. Thanks again to everyone who continues to listen to the podcast and for those who have been sharing our content on social media as of late. We have a lot more stories to share, and we are excited to relay that information to those in the game moving forward. As always, stay safe, and all the best.